Today, Donald Trump was rebuked by the one judge who he was hoping might give him a leg up. In a new decision this afternoon, Judge Aileen Cannon appears to have basically ignored one of the Trump team's most brazen requests in the entire classified documents case. Last month, Trump's lawyers asked Judge Cannon to allow Mr. Trump to view the classified documents at issue in his Mar-a-Lago club while he prepares for trial. Now, that request was fairly outlandish, given the fact that the charges in that case all stem from Trump's decision to take classified documents down to Mar-a-Lago in the very first place. Special counsel Jack Smith's team argued that those documents should be treated like all other highly classified material and that Trump's team should only be able to view them in a sensitive, compartmented information facility, what is known as a SCIF. Well, today, Judge Cannon issued her decision on this matter. And it is important to note here that Judge Cannon did not specifically deny Trump's request to look at classified documents at a Florida Beach club, but she did not grant it either. This is from her decision. Any classified information with the defense discusses with any classified information the defense discusses with the defendant in any way shall be handled in accordance with this order, including such requirements as confining all discussions, documents, and materials to an accredited SCIF or other location authorized by the security officer in charge of classified material in this case. A rough translation of that might be, unless a security official deems otherwise, that bathroom with the chandelier is not a secure place to look at classified Iranian war plans. So apart from the fact that Judge Cannon does not seem to be playing ball with Trump's most bonkers requests here, this decision also signals that the prosecution can finally begin laying out the evidence they would like to use in this case, including which of the classified documents they aim to use as evidence against Donald Trump. Now, if you have been following this case, you know there has been a lot of scrutiny on Judge Cannon and her perceived sympathies towards Donald Trump the man who appointed Cannon to the federal bench. And while this decision may allay some of those concerns, the timing of the decision could be cause for new concern. The prosecution has been asking Judge Cannon to make a decision on all of this classified material since June. But Judge Cannon waited until now, mid-September, to make that decision, which begs the question, why? Do things just move really slowly down there in the Southern District of Florida, or is it something else? Is Judge Cannon slow walking this thing? All this comes as we are learning more about the lengths that Trump allegedly went to in order to hold on to those classified documents in the first place down at Mar-a-Lago. The New York Times released new reporting this weekend about Trump's alleged attempt to delete Mar-a-Lago security footage. And that alleged request reportedly set off a panic within the Trump organization. The person in charge of IT down at Mar-a-Lago is this man, Yusil Tavares. You may recall that Mr. Tavares is now one of the witnesses for the prosecution. We know from the indictment that another Trump employee named Carlos de Oliveira allegedly told Mr. Tavares repeatedly that the boss wanted security footage from Mar-a-Lago deleted after the FBI requested that footage. And the Times reports on what happened next. Soon after returning to his office, Mr. Tavares confided in a colleague, Renzo Navarre, what had ha- just happened, according to people with, the knowledge, with knowledge of what took place. And within days, Mr. Tavares relayed the story to a superior in Trump Tower. 
One executive in New York, Matthew Calamari Jr., the Trump Organization's corporate director of security, apparently became alarmed, according to people with knowledge of the matter. Calamari alerted the company's legal department, prompting a senior lawyer at the company to deliver a stern warning not to delete anything. So Trump demands that the security footage be deleted. Yusil Tavares, the IT guy, is reluctant to do it, and he runs that request up the chain. And the Trump Organization lawyers then effectively say, absolutely not, do not do that, no way. We know that at some point after that, another Trump employee drains the pool at Mar-a-Lago and just happens to flood the room where all that security footage is being kept. Mar-a-Lago is not a nuanced or particularly complicated indictment here. But will any of that actually matter at the rate that Judge Cannon is allowing this case to proceed? Joining me now are Mimi Roca, former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, now the district attorney for Westchester County, and Mark Zaid, an attorney specializing in cases involving national security. Mimi and Mark, thank you for being here. I, Mimi, would love to know, what would account for a judge, you know, receiving this request from the government in June and waiting until September to make a decision on it? Look, judges often do not move at the pace that we as litigators, litigants want them to. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, I have been frustrated by a, a pace of a judge's judge making decisions more times than I can count. Um, I'm hesitant to ascribe ill motive to this judge for that, particularly since, look, she made substantively the common sense, uh, you know, ruling here that one would have expected given the circumstances. That said, should she have taken into account the fact in, you know, how long it took her to rule on this, that this is a matter of the greatest public interest um, that could possibly exist, as many of the other judges do, as the 11th Circuit yes. seems to be doing, um, and approach it with that urgency. So I I'm not going to ascribe to her a deliberate delay, but it would be nice to see every judge who's involved in any case involving Trump to understand that we need to have some more clarity. We need to have resolution before the election, no matter what political party you're from, no matter who you plan to vote for. Well, yeah, it's complicated by the fact that one party in this does not think we need to have resolution before the election. And in fact, that may be his primary legal defense strategy. But yes, to your point, when you see Tanya Chutkin, another federal judge, when you see non-federal, you, you know, Judge McAfee down in Georgia, Judge Steve Jones there, the 11th Circuit, yes. all moving with alacrity, it does make the layman, me being the layman, scratch my head and say, what's going on here? Mark, um, when we talk about the decision that Judge Cannon made here, how much room is there for Trump to appeal this or to otherwise further slow down the discovery process? So very different things. Uh, appeal this, not really. I mean, the fact is, this is a very routine protective order that has been put in place. There was nothing in this order 
that was unusual in any way. It was a bad day for Donald Trump because he didn't get what he had asked for. And so in that sense, I guess one can say it was a victory for the prosecution, but it was standardized. Uh, Most of those provisions I never would have thought about in one of my cases because I would have expected it to be that way. Now, whether he can slow the process down by way of discovery, yes. And that is a concern with respect to the pace of this court. I I agree with Mimi wholeheartedly. I can't ascribe any malicious motive to Judge Cannon at at this point or perhaps at any point, but there is so much discretionary power in a federal judge or any judge, quite frankly, to govern the rules in their courtroom, particularly pace. And this type of case, an Espionage Act case, is very much decided through the pretrial motion process. This is not going to be a case where there's going to be a surprise if we go, if he goes to trial. Mm -hmm. At trial, I can tell you what will happen. He will be convicted. But I don't know what will happen in many of the pretrial classified information procedure act, SEPA motions that he might try and bring that could throw a monkey wrench, especially in the process where there could be appeals up to the 11th circuit that would delay the actual handling or occurrence of the criminal case, the trial itself. Mark, can I follow up on that? If Trump challenges the classification of something, is that judge, I assume that that goes through Judge Cannon, but there's also a classified security officer that's making some of these calls, right? Not the substantive calls. The security officer is just handling the procedural aspects of it to make sure there's uh, an integrity of protecting the information. So, yes, and there was a footnote in the in the order, although it was very broad as to what classified information is, that it's it has to be a clear delineation of declassification, which was somewhat, even though standard, was somewhat of a shot across Trump's bow, uh, that he could bring motions to challenge classification. But historically, in classified information cases, in Espionage Act mishandling cases, it is almost impossible to challenge the classification status of the document. Now, he could argue, I, the president, declassified some of the documents, but he's going to have to show outright proof, not just, oh, I did it, nobody memorialized it in writing. He's going to have to have witnesses who say, yeah, he did it, the security officers maybe failed in their job, but you know, I, I know the White House security officers, they're careerists, and that would be very unlikely. Yeah, this means now, Mimi, that Trump's lawyers, in theory, are going to have access to some of this classified information. Is that right? The ones who have the clearance. Yes. Right. And can you talk a little bit about how that how. So right now, as it stands, assuming there are no further appeals, which is a big assumption, Trump and his lawyers will have to be in a skiff, a sensitive, sensitive, compartmentalized information facility. Am I getting it right? In order to look at anything classified. Is that right? That is that is absolutely correct. And 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 if you if you would just walk us through sort of what that process is like, this discovery process that we are on the verge of actually entering into. I mean, any discovery process, even when you take the skiff out of it, is time consuming um, and tedious. I mean, you know, you want someone, I doubt it would be Trump himself, but lawyers to go through every document, um, you know, lot, meticulously. Um, you add the skiff into that, and it's particularly um, laborious 
but necessary and something that, you know, people charged with these kinds of crimes and much uh, less significant crimes have to deal with every day. You have to leave your phone outside. Um, you know, there is all sorts of requirements. It's a windowless room, uh, soundproof. Um, it's not a pleasant place to be. And yet, you know, prosecutors, agents, defense attorneys, presidential candidates <laughs> spend hours in there. And it's just a necessity to protect the kind of information that is at issue in this case. And why is it an issue? It's an issue because Trump had the documents. So, yeah. you know, it's a little um, complaining about a situation that he created. It, it, it bears mentioning that he is going to be running. He is running for president. Right. And just to to just put it in the starkest terms possible, if he is trying to talk about specific documents with his lawyers regarding his defense for a trial that's supposed to start in May, he physically needs to be in a secure facility in order to do that. Presumably, they're not dotted all over the campaign trail in Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, et cetera. So that is going to add further, shall we say, challenge to making this happen. Would you say that's a fair assessment? Yeah, it is. I mean, and that to me is, is you know, again, we I mean, there may be delays. There may be proper delays, improper delays. We'll see. But the heart of her ruling, you know, is substantively correct. But it does create a new series of uh, not unexpected, not unreasonable, but of of issues that will make this Yes, harder for them to deal with than Mark, being Trump and his team. Sorry, Mark. Mark, just real, just set expectations here. The trial is set for May. Is that a reasonable? Should we assume something is actually going to happen at that point? Certainly, possibly. I mean, there are a number of motions that that Trump can potentially bring, particularly regarding whether he declassified information or if he wants to push for additional access to information for his lawyers in particular. Now, there was another provision in the ex in the protective order that was issued that I, I think is very important. It talks about how just because information, I'll paraphrase, obviously, just because information that he knows to be classified is out there publicly in the New York Times, has been talked about on this program, that does not declassify the information. Now, that's a standardized provision. We deal with that constantly in lawsuits that I handle. And we have to specifically show that the information has been declassified by the entity, the agency or person who had authority over it. And that means because Trump has has said a bunch of times on uh, his campaign trail in the last few months after this investigation started that, wait a minute, you know, this information's in this newspaper, that newspaper, this network. Uh, he can't do that. That's not yeah. going to fly. And I, hopefully his lawyers will make that very clear to him because he's on very dangerous ground with that. So hopefully someone somewhere or something will make that clear to him. Mimi Roca and Mark Zaid, two great experts on all of this. Thank you for your time tonight. We have a lot more this evening, including a shock announcement from Senator Mitt Romney and what it means for the future of the Republican Party. But first, we're going down to Georgia as a judge weighs whether Trump should go to trial in less than six weeks. Six weeks as in six actual weeks. The latest on all that is next. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops, on. TVs, streaming. Game console, console. Smart thermostat, set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera, 
Well, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go, you are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators, now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Hi everyone, it's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. So there are lots of developments out of Georgia today, where Donald Trump and 18 other co-defendants are being accused of being a part of a criminal racketeering enterprise to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election in that state. Two co-defendants, Ken Chaseborough and Sidney Powell, have already requested a speedy trial. And that request has been granted. Their trial is set to begin on October 23rd. But the other defendants, including former President Trump, do not want to move that fast. Last night, soon after D.A. Fonnie Willis filed a motion saying all of the defendants should be tried together because the same evidence and the same witnesses are being used against all of them. After that, last night, Donald Trump filed a motion waiving his right to a speedy trial. In exchange, he is asking to be tried separately from the other defendants. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that Trump is merely looking to separate his trial from everyone else's. It could suggest that Trump is attempting to avoid a speedy trial at all costs. At least five other co-defendants filed similar motions today, with many of them saying they also won't be ready to go to trial by October 23rd. And all of this is turning into a kind of logistical nightmare, the very kind that prosecutors usually like to avoid. Now, as to the central question here, will Donald Trump go to trial on October 23rd? The final word on that rests with the judge, Scott McAfee, who is expected to make a decision very soon, perhaps as early as tomorrow. Joining me now is Chris Timmons. He's a former deputy chief assistant district attorney who has tried RICO cases in both DeKalb and Cobb County. Chris, thank you for being here to enlighten me as to what we should, setting our expectations, how to do it. Um, Judge McAfee, what is your expectation about this case and 19 co-defendants going to trial together? So uh, there's some tension here, Alex. One of the things that I don't think a lot of people are talking about, but they need to keep in mind, is that this is an active courtroom. Um, so he's probably got between 500 and 1,000 cases that are pending besides this very major case. Among those cases are going to be people who are currently in custody. There are people who are trying to get divorces. And so if this courtroom is tied up for two years as opposed to one year, that's going to cause a major backlog. That's the tension on the one side, which is the tension that says, let's try everybody together starting on October 23rd. The other tension is ineffective assistance of counsel, which is a standard here in Georgia as it is nationwide. And that is that if you have attorneys who are not properly prepared for trial, that's an appellate issue and could get the case reversed. So you certainly don't want to be the judge who gets reversed in one of the most high profile cases in history. Um, so and that those are really the two things that we're, we're worrying about. The final thing that's kind of an issue is what's going on in federal court um, with Meadows. I understand we've got some orders that came down from the 11th Circuit today setting up a 
a briefing schedule. The last thing in the world you want to do is have a jury picked, have issue joined, meaning jeopardy has attached for double jeopardy purposes, and then have the case removed to federal court, which could, could cause a double jeopardy issue. So all those things are in play, and all those things are things that Judge McAfee has asked about and will be talking about as the case moves forward. Well, so, okay, reading between the lines there, I'm hearing there's a risk at moving the trial date to giving everybody an October 23rd trial date because their lawyers may not be prepared, and there's all kinds of judicial peril in not ha- having attorneys who can later say, or a counsel that can la- later claim, or defendants who can later claim counsel wasn't prepared. And, and secondly, in terms of the Meadows request, we're talking about removal to federal court. Judge McAfee has brought that up, saying there's this whole fe- attempt to remove this to federal court. How's that going to intersect with everything we're doing here in state court? The fact is the 11th Circuit seems to be moving pretty fast on all that, doesn't it? Is it your sense that we'll have the whole question about whether any of these defendants can move to federal court and get out of Georgia state court? That's going to be resolved relatively soon? Yeah, it looks like it probably by mid-September um, or, or late September. Anyway, I think the last date on the scheduling order is the 28th. Um, but yeah, it's moving lightning fast. I, I haven't seen the 11th Circuit move that fast before in any of the cases that I've dealt with. Um, so, you know, but but we, we're in unusual circumstances. I think probably the you know the 100 or so uh, folk correspondents and, and contributors that have talked about this case have said the same thing over and over again. We're in uncharted waters. And so I think the 11th Circuit wants to give some direction um, to Judge McAfee uh, to let him know whether or not to proceed forward. And I think that they're going to ultimately side with um, Judge Jones from the district court. I don't expect uh, Mr. Meadows to get the, his, uh, his, the ruling against him overturned. And so, but then the question is, okay, we're, you know, we're at September 28th. We get a ruling maybe by October 1st by the 11th circuit. Are those you know, 22 days enough time to let everybody know this is coming? But yeah. one other thing uh, that you should consider, Alex, is that, you know, they've got time during jury selection. This jury selection is going to take forever. And to the extent that there's extensive discovery, they can be formulating a plan as to how they wish to defend this case, even while they're they're questioning the jurors and going through the voir dire process. One more, just one more for you, Chris, in terms of the, the 19, when do we find out if anybody's flipped? At what point that, that the flipping, if it's happening, is happening now. Is that right? It should be. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm sure there are discussions that are going on behind the scenes uh, to flip folks. And usually, Alex, what you want to do, if you look at an indictment, particularly in Georgia, um, the, the least important members of a criminal conspiracy are the names towards the end. And so what you typically want to do when you're flipping people, and I, I've flipped people all the time when I was a prosecutor, you start from the bottom and you work your way up like a carpet. Um, and so you work your way towards the top. You very rarely want to flip someone towards the top. The interesting one, kind of the wild card here, if I was a prosecutor, I'd be looking at trying to flip Mark Meadows, um, because I think if anybody knows whether Donald Trump had said something along the lines of, hey, I know there wasn't voter fraud in Georgia, but I need to pursue this anyway, the person who probably would know that would be Mark Meadows. He'd have been at a lot of the meetings where that possibly could have come up. So that's the person I would be targeting if it were my case. But they are, they may already have that evidence. They may be getting that from someone else. But that's the wild card in this case. That's the thing that the state really needs to prove is that Donald Trump knew on some level um, that there was not voter fraud involved in Georgia, that it was a clean election. Yeah, well, right now, Mark Meadows would really like to not have to go to court in Georgia state court, so we'll (laughs) see how that all ends up. Chris Timmons, a wealth of information on a subject that is complicated, like an elaborately woven carpet. (laughs) A carpet filled (laughs) with people ready to flip and all kinds of uh, legal pretrial motions. Thank you for joining me tonight, Chris. Appreciate it. Sure. Uh, Appreciate it. 
Appreciated the opportunity for the imagery, Alex. Have a good night. <laughs> You're so welcome. We have lots more this evening, including the evidence behind the Republican push to impeach Biden or the lack thereof. Congressman Jamie Raskin joins me on all that. But first, a Tea Party insurgent is now being threatened with a MAGA primary. How that happened and what it all means for the GOP. That is next. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. Look, my wing of the party talks about policy and about issues that will make a difference to the lives of the American people. The uh, Trump wing of the party uh, talks about resentments of various kind and getting even. That was Utah Senator and former Republican presidential candidate Mitt Romney talking to the press for the first time since he announced this afternoon that he will not be seeking reelection. And while the senator told the reporters in the room today that his reason for retiring was to make room for a younger generation of leaders, Senator Romney was a bit more candid elsewhere. For years now, Romney has been meeting with journalist McKay Coppins in secret, telling Coppins how he really feels for Coppins' upcoming biography, Romney, A Reckoning. And today, The Atlantic published the first excerpt from it. Now, Romney told Coppins earlier this year that he had decided not to seek re-election. And the decision was, in part, because the men in Romney's family had a history of sudden heart failure. Romney wanted to spend more time with his family. But the other part of this decision seems to be based on a feeling that Romney no longer fit in his own party. Romney talks about how after he was the only Republican to vote to convict Trump in Trump's first impeachment trial, after that, Romney says he never felt comfortable at a Republican caucus lunch again. Romney explains how, how jarring it was to be booed by Republicans in his home state at the Utah Republican Party convention, and that if he was being honest with himself, there were moments up on that stage where he was afraid of them. It was Utah, after all, and in Utah, people carry guns. Sit with that for a moment. The Republican Party has radicalized so much that its own 2012 candidate for president is physically afraid of the party's base. That is where we are at. Do you remember when Congressman Ken Buck first entered the political scene in 2010? Buck was a Tea Party-backed insurgent in Colorado, and he strongly disagreed with the concept of separation of church and state, and he thought that homosexuality was a choice. When asked why voters should pick him over his female primary opponent in 2010, Buck answered, because I don't wear high heels. 
Now, Congressman Buck maintains that all of those statements were somehow taken out of context. But even if we take him at his word on that, Congressman Ken Buck is incredibly conservative on basically every other issue. He campaigns on being against critical race theory in schools, and he has an AR-15-style rifle on the wall of his congressional office in D.C. He was one of only two congresspeople to vote against the March 2020 COVID response bill. Buck told Fox News he would not get the COVID vaccine because he is American. So Ken Buck, not exactly a bleeding heart liberal. But now, this year, 2023, CNN is reporting that the MAGA wing of the Republican Party wants to primary Congressman Ken Buck. They don't think he is conservative enough. The MAGA wing of the party has been mad at Congressman Buck ever since he ultimately decided to vote to certify the results of the 2020 election on January 6th. But the straw that broke the proverbial camel's back appears to have been that Congressman Ken Buck did not think it was right to open an impeachment inquiry into President Biden without any actual evidence. Notice that I say didn't past tense because apparently yesterday, Congressman Buck changed his tune. He told NBC's Sahil Kapoor that he now thinks it's a good idea for Kevin McCarthy to launch an impeachment inquiry in the House. So maybe Congressman Buck is MAGA enough to stay in the good graces of the Republican Party. Senator Mitt Romney, on the other hand, is out, never to return. We are going to talk to Congressman Jamie Raskin, the lead impeachment manager in Trump's second impeachment, about this new Republican boondoggle of an impeachment against President Biden. And that is coming up next. There's no evidence that has uh, turned up over the last seven months that Joe Biden is guilty of any criminal wrongdoing, any high crime and misdemeanor, uh, much less uh, prostitution, bribery, money laundering, or any of the um, uh, crimes that were set forth in that laundry list. That was Congressman Jamie Raskin today during a hearing for the House Oversight Committee, responding to his Republican colleagues in their latest attempt to justify an impeachment inquiry into President Biden, despite the fact that that inquiry is based on accusations and hearsay and not actual evidence. Now, The New York Times has pretty helpfully unpacked some of the claims Speaker McCarthy made when he announced that impeachment inquiry. And here's one example. Mr. McCarthy's claim. Eyewitnesses have testified that the president joined on multiple phone calls and had multiple interactions, dinners that resulted in cars, millions of dollars into his sons and his son's business partners. The facts. Beyond Mr. Biden exchanging niceties with associates of his son, Republicans have provided no evidence that the elder Mr. Biden was involved in landing that business or participated in it in any way. Regarding a claim that bank records show nearly $20 million in payments to Biden's family members and associates, the Times points out that there is, quote, no evidence that any of the business relationships were illegal. Joining me now is Congressman Jamie Raskin, Democrat of Maryland, member of the House Oversight and Judiciary Committees and a key leader in Trump's second impeachment. Congressman Raskin, thank you so much for being here. I I I find that the the more you dig into these Republican claims, the more it is evident that there is no there there. Should Democrats rebut directly some of the arguments, the specific arguments that Republicans are making as it comes to President Biden? Yeah, well, we need to rebut every single argument that they're making. Um, Otherwise, um, you know, one of their claims will just get out of control. They'll 
all rally around it and they'll repeat it a million times. But the, the bottom line is that we've we've been through seven months of hearings on this and they essentially haven't laid a glove on Joe Biden. There's simply not a shred of evidence linking him to any criminal wrongdoing or any treason, bribery or other high crime and misdemeanor. And um, all there is is a bunch of rumor and innuendo. And the course is the the country is about to get uh, a complete seminar in uh, evidence and what is real evidence and what's not mm. evidence. But all that they have is a, a bunch of idle rumor and speculation at this point. And you think that needs to be answered? Well, all of the evidence really answers it. Um, yeah. The witnesses they brought forward, the 12,000 pages worth of bank records, the SARS documents, all of them contradict the factual claims that they're making every day. In other words, we've got all of the evidence and it completely demolishes the assertions they're making about Joe Biden, but that's not going to allow them to stop them. Why? Because it has nothing to do with factual evidence. It has to do with the fact that Donald Trump wants them to proceed and is ordering them to do it. Marjorie Taylor Greene had dinner with him a few nights ago and pledged to him that there would be a long and agonizingly difficult proceeding against Joe Biden. I mean, it's Donald Trump exacting revenge for an impeachment that um, he lost in the House of Representatives because he incited a violent insurrection against the union. And then there was a 57 to 43 vote in the Senate to convict him. He beat the constitutional spread by a little bit, but there were commanding bipartisan, bicameral majorities seeking to convict him and establishing as a legislative fact that he did incite insurrection against our government. Yeah, well, being the impeachment expert and investigation expert that you are, I do wonder if you're concerned about the power that an, an impeachment inquiry and those that sit on the the inquisition, as it were, that they have they have enhanced subpoena power and all this. Right. I mean, what what should we what what are Democrats preparing for in terms of the information that Republicans are going to seek from the president and his family? Well, they've essentially gotten all of the evidence that they have sought to obtain so far. Uh, the claim of, of obstruction is ridiculous when Chairman Comer of the Oversight Committee himself is bragging about how he got 100 percent of everything he asked for. And in that moment of boastfulness, he gave the game away. It's very clear that Everything they've been seeking, they've had, but it's just it contradicts the claims that they want to be making. Um, and remember, you know, this is a bunch of people who could not bring themselves to vote to impeach Donald Trump or to convict uh, Donald Trump uh, for inciting an insurrection against the union to overthrow a presidential election when the evidence was overwhelming. Now, there's basically no evidence of anything against Joe Biden, and they want to proceed to go ahead and impeach him. So we're going to um, check them at every stop. We're not going to allow them to get away with anything. Um, as you know, as we did today, there was a, a hearing that they called about third party financing of litigation and the corruption of the justice system. Well, we turned it into a hearing about the corruption of the Supreme Court by all of the billionaire sugar daddies that have adopted uh, Justice Thomas, Justice Alito, and so on, and spread millions of dollars around um, 
in the Supreme Court with things like fancy, far-flung international vacations, jet travel, trips on yachts, private school tuition, buying their family houses, buying uh, private school tuition for members of their families. We're going to put them on trial. There's This is the only way that we can deal with the rule or ruin faction that has taken over the Republican Party. And Kevin McCarthy capitulates to them at every turn. I see. I see a strategy emerging here. Take their inquisition and turn it into your own. Congressman Jamie Raskin, thank you, as always, for your time. And if and I could say what they it, go ahead. Yeah, it's not an inquisition. Uh, it's like Harry Truman. They said, give him hell. And he said, no, I'm not going to give him hell. I'm just going to give him the facts. And that's all we're about, putting the facts out there, as well as the law. The Constitution requires high crimes and misdemeanors, and they don't have evidence of anything like that. Just fight him back with the truth. Thank you so much, Congressman. When we come back, as Mitt Romney jumps ship from the Republican Party, the GOP's de facto leader is relishing support from Vladimir Putin. Where to go from there? New York Times columnist Michelle Goldberg reads the roadmap with me coming up next. The Trump-Putin Mutual Admiration Society is alive and well. First, the Russian president called Trump's criminal indictments a symbol of the rottenness of the American political system, then added that everything that is happening with Trump is the persecution of a political rival for political reasons. (coughs) Alexei Navalny. (coughs) Then, Then Trump went on Truth Social and used Putin's words to attack Joe Biden. And while he was doing that, Putin was giving a tour of a Russian spaceport to North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un. Really, actually, that was happening at the same time. U.S. officials say the two governments are actively advancing a potential arms deal. That is who the Republican presidential frontrunner is citing for political gain. A guy who is currently considering exchanging ballistic missile technology with Kim Jong-un in exchange for weapons to use against Ukraine. And as Republican moderates like Mitt Romney start to jump ship, the rest of the GOP is increasingly coalescing behind the same guy that Vladimir Putin is out there defending. Well, there's no question, but that the Republican Party today is is in the shadow of Donald Trump. Uh, He is the leader of the greatest portion of the Republican Party. Uh, It's a populist, I believe, demagogue portion of the party. Joining me now is Michelle Goldberg, opinion columnist for The New York Times. Michelle, what does it mean to lose Mitt Romney to the, from the G? What, what does it mean to excise, excommunicate, if you will, Romney? Well, the thing is, I don't think Mitt Romney was necessarily excommunicated. I mean, it doesn't look like he was necessarily going to lose a primary. He's quite popular in Utah. I think what it means is that Mitt Romney has given up on the Republican Party, right? Like even Mitt Romney, who at every stage of the Trump administration was cons- was consistently sure that there was some sort of alternative, that there was some sort of bubble that was going to pop, that there was, you know, the possibility of a patriotic Republican Party, has basically seen the writing on the wall and said— you know, that he can't do it anymore. I'm a man without a country. My question is, though, if he is so disheartened, um, disaffected uh, of, of, you know, with the Republican Party, why not be more clear about what's happening inside it? In this book that's forthcoming from McKay Coppins, Romney, A Reckoning, he tells McKay Coppins what he really thinks. I mean, he goes on, he, he effectively gossips, if right. you will, about the ways in which other senior Republicans, including Mitch McConnell, understand Trump to be a pox on the party. And yet in his, you know, big announcement, he's leaving. 
You're not hearing any of that. What's the right. point of the indignation if you're going to keep it to yourself? Although he's not quite keeping it to himself, right? Because so he knows of, it's going to be on sale, right? He knows. I mean, because he knows that obviously that this is going into this book. Although the thing that I think is so interesting is that you know he talks in that excerpt in the Atlantic about the social pressures that when you're a Republican, even if you're going to going to be an anti-Trump Republican, there are these social pressures to kind of toe the line. And he talks about how mm-hmm. you know relieved his staff was when they thought that he might actually vote to acquit Donald Trump during the first impeachment. And so you know, and he even talked about how, how awkward it is to sit at the, the caucus lunches, lunches yes. with these people who have, you know, who are behaving in such a you know, slavish and craven manner. Yeah. And so I think, you know, I just think that there's, you know, there's kind of a level at which when they're in the in the tent, they try to stay, stay somewhat in the good graces. And then once they kind of really um, give up on it, you see this with a lot of anti-Trump ex-Republicans. Well, I do wonder, though, when you have someone like Tommy Tuberville in the Senate, like it's clear he's not stay, staying in line. Right. And and the Senate is increasingly I won't say it's devolving into the same chaos as the House, but it's very clear that Mitch McConnell is not running the tight ship anymore. Look at what Tuberville's doing at, at completely at odds with his party on key issues. So why not? But he's not completely at odds with his party. Well, I mean, he's completely at odds with his, you know, with, with kind of Senate leadership, perhaps. Sure. But he's actually going very- after the defense industry, the, the, the defense industrial complex is is that largely at odds with what Republicans want. I think it's what Republicans have traditionally wanted. Wanted. But mm-hmm. I think that there is, you know, there's there's a, a, a part of the Republican Party that has become so radicalized, not just about the Democrats, but really about um, has become really um, so pessimistic about America that they no longer see the military as something yeah. worthy of their respect. They no longer see, you know, the kind of defense industry as something worthy of their respect. And so, you know, not because they're offended by America's you know, forever wars, not because they're offended by yeah. the pork that keeps the defended defense industry afloat, but because they think the military is quote unquote woke. And so in yeah. that sense, you know, they are, Tommy he's not is very much right. He's kind of part of the zeitgeist. It's of MAGA the nihilism. Right. Yeah. MAGA nihilism. That's very much a co- common thread inside the GOP. I, but I, you know, with a Josh Hawley, with a JD Vance and to some degree Tuberville, if they're not directly ideologically at odds, they have shown that even in the Senate, you can be an individual. You can Set yourself apart from the crowd. And one wonders, you know, it, could Romney not use these waning days to make more of a publicly principled stand well, against the party? let's see if he will, because yes. he's still going to be in the Senate for a couple more years, yes, or at least two. Eight. Right. And so we'll see kind of, you know, now that he has nothing left to lose, we'll see, you know, we'll, we'll see what he does. But, you know, I just think it goes to show that there is no more decent faction of the Republican Party, yeah. right? The, you know, and we used to kind of wonder at the be, at the onset of the Trump administration, why aren't the Republicans speaking up? How do they live with themselves? You know, how, how you know, when is kind of the things that they say behind closed doors going to break out into the open? And I think the answer that Romney has come never. to is never. Yeah. And in the meantime, Trump... Putin, Kim Jong-un, and also Elon right. Musk. It's like and a it's, DC Comics Mount Batty conflict. Right, and we think about, I mean, people I think are sick of talking about Russia because the Republicans have played a sort of jujitsu where they whined about it so much that they've made it seem as if it was, um, as if Trump didn't actually seek and receive Russian help in the last election. But just imagine the scope of Russian meddling 
in this election and the degree to which there will be no pushback on it from the Republican Party. Pushback, embrace. Yeah, absolutely. This is where we live. This is where we are at right now, September 2023. Michelle Goldberg, thank you as always. I can't wait to read your next column maybe about Mitt Romney. (laughs) That is our show for this evening.